This is Solastalgia. My name is Sue Ann Harding. My name is Colin Shaw. And this podcast is a series of stories about accidental environmental activism in Northern Ireland. I first came across the word solastalgia when I was reading Robert McFarlane's book, Underland. And solastalgia is a word that was coined by an Australian professor, Glenn Albrecht, in 2003. And he defines it as a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. Today in the studio, we're delighted to have Anne Harper, and we're going to talk with Anne about a place in Northern Ireland, Knock Ivey. So, Anne, perhaps you can start by telling us about that place. Well, Knock Ivey is an isolated ridge just outside the town of Rough Island and South Down. It's not particularly tall or particularly kind of noticeable, although it is from certain directions, and it fits. Well, we know that it was the inauguration place for the tribe, the Tua, who lived in that part of County Down, probably certainly in the Iron Age and possibly further back than that. We know that on top of that hill there is a Neolithic burial cairn that was quite possibly a passage tomb as well. So we know that the very earliest settlers in this part of Ulster honoured that hill. They buried their ancestors in it. They put a, a sun temple on top of it. And it's my belief that that Sun Temple is in an alignment with other features of a similar and later date. Really, once you get on top of that small hill, the views are absolutely incredible. You wouldn't believe it. And that's actually something that it has in common with other inauguration places throughout Ireland. They don't look like much. They're easily accessible. But the views are panoramic. And so for that reason, it was chosen, we think, as the inauguration place for the the kings of the Tua, the tribe that lived there, the Avakakova, and those kings married the land. They were wedded to the land in a special ceremony where they became betrothed to the land goddess and gave her their fealty. And it was a, it was a, how, how do you say, a marriage between people and the land. And long before we knew any of this stuff, it was just a beautiful place that we went as children. And then I took my family there. So. It's a place that I've known my whole life. That's kind of cool, marrying the land mm -hmm. like that. That's a really interesting idea. Mm -hmm. Do you know more about that? Well, I would say that in common with other indigenous populations throughout the world, the reverence that people, native people here had for the land, and that, that persisted. I wouldn't say that, you know, I wouldn't try and dress it up and sort of fairy tale it, but I think they certainly understood that their well-being was entirely due to the, the fortunes that they got from, from the land itself mm -hmm. and in their world from maybe some supernatural forces as well, the sun <laughs> being a very important one. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe that your fortune is tied up with your relationship with that land and you believe that the land has power, then absolutely you would revere it. And these places, these small hills, curvaceous hills, mm -hmm. which resembled the female um, were seen as the goddess represented in the land. So they were honoured. And I suppose that's, it's something that, you you know, now we know logically. But I think before that, it wasn't really understood logically by the people who loved it. It was yeah. felt. Yes. Could you talk us through the name? So Knock Ivy. Knock Ivy. Well, Knock is Irish for small hill or to hill. Mm -hmm. And Ivy recalls the name of the, the tribe, the Uvaka Kova, mm -hmm. um, who inhabited the land. They kind of morphed into the McGuinness Lords of Ivy, who were the rulers in Ivy right up until the 1600s. They kind of played the game for a while and they went through the process of surrender and regrant. And ultimately, after the rebellion of the 1640s, they, they lost their land. But the, the continuity of association between the people of South Down in the land that we would once have called Ivey and the land itself, that continuity goes right back to 3600 BC, something like that. We can trace that hill. That hill was important to the people of that area for at least as long as that. In fact, possibly even longer because underneath the cairn is a layer of bone and ash that's 10 centimetres deep and we don't know the limits of it. And we think that very likely there was ritual fires on top of the hill. So it was a sacred place albeit forgotten mm -hmm. by many in the current generation, but certainly revered for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. That's like sacred site. Mm -hmm. That's what Indigenous people in Australia would, would call it. It's a sacred site. And the other thing that strikes me too is that there is uh, nothing maybe spectacular about it uh, from a topographical point of view, perhaps. We're not thinking about a craggy 
mountain or it is beautiful though I have to say you no, know I, I, it, it, when yeah. the sun sets there's certain angles you you know that where she really does sort of stand out and I suppose it's that hidden beauty that is so special when you do go and not many people have been lately because they're they're being prevented from going now but when you do go there is a vibe about it definitely yeah I'm 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 sure and I think what I was heading towards was this idea of hiddenness or that it's not dramatic and obvious it's more yeah it's those kind of beauty of the hidden places or the beauty of places that are known to local people and have that real special thing you know we drove right past when we went down to uh ross trevor for the gathering thing because i was looking at it on the map and i went "Mm, we drove right past yeah i mean it does slightly depend on which angle you come at it from Mm -hmm. as well but the you know it's a little like crop of uh, granodiorite and there's sandstone it's a it's a little bit all of its own and I think that what's really interesting about it sort of geographically is that it sits in the centre of a natural ge- geological bowl with the Dramara Hills on one side, Sleeve Croob, and then the Mourne Mountains running across from east to west. If you stand on the knock and you look at the Mourns, it becomes, in my view, in a way, uh, something of a natural sundial. It shows you can follow this, the, the rise and fall of the sun through different mountain peaks. And then you have the wonderful Ring of Gullion as well. So Knock Ivy sits at the centre of this solar mm. wheel. Geological wheel. (laughs) So yes, overlooked perhaps, but also for a long time, I think maybe that protected it. And unfortunately, it didn't protect it for Mm. for long enough. (laughs) And it's special to you too, from family and childhood. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, family trips with my mum and dad, um, visiting my grandmother, whose house was just close by. And then when I moved home and brought my children, then certainly we you know, we used to really look forward because it's not a difficult walk. You know, I like hills, but nobody wants to necessarily hike a big one every week. So it's got that, you know, it's actually really accessible for people who couldn't climb a big hill. So that's one of the things that we've been trying to sort of say to the Department for Communities. You know, this is this is actually a really unique place. Yeah. I get the sense that you perhaps did your own level of research to discover some of these, some of its past. Was Did you become sort of a local historian? And Yeah, well, I mean, I've always been interested in archaeology when I was trying to sort of decide a career path. I did, I think I did three days in the archaeology department at Queen's and uh, two days with the Ulster Orchestra or something like that mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately plumped for the, the orchestral life. And that's fine, but I never really lost an interest in archaeology. My father was an archaeologist. Um, he was he was quite well a respected archaeologist um, here. So he, without, because archaeologists never overstate anything, they never want to say anything, you know, definitive, might might be this or might be that, it's quite, especially not when it's that far back. But he did make it clear that it was a very special one. And we know that there are lots of cairns around, but this was particularly old and particularly interesting. Um, And he'd actually worked with the man who'd excavated part of the cairn in the 1950s, the man called Pat Collins. And so he had a bit of an insight into Pat's thoughts on it and explained those to us in in kind of an overview. But at the time when the the place was desecrated, 2017, we didn't know any of the, the sort of story of it properly. We hadn't done the research. track appeared on the side of the hill and ever since I moved home I would visit and I looked at this track and it was sort of going right up and it seemed to have a sort of more like a turning circle at the top and I thought what do they need that track going all the way to the top of the hill for something not right about that it's coming awful close to the cairn and I should do something about that and maybe I should ask if you know if they have any consents for that because it's cutting right in and I didn't do it until I think something like the 1st of September 2017 when I finally got round to writing the email and saying I just want to see what the permissions were around this and then on the 5th of September they started work to put up a broadband mast right beside the cairn and I think that the HED people whenever we kind of pressed the panic button kind of thought hang on a minute what was this woman ringing up on the 1st of September for whenever it's only so I feel like I should have perhaps acted on my hunch earlier but there you go that's interesting because that's that sense of unease what is this and asking questions and you know the place really well so you'd walked it and clearly know it very well so you see something that's not quite right a little bit of unease but we've talked about this before that kind of sense of inhibition Mm -hmm. oh I better not you know know people don't like to rock boats do they or poke their nose into other people's business and all of that so or even you kind of doubt yourself or you try you kind of think well perhaps they know what 
they're do you know so no I think maybe it's more than that I think maybe you just say oh they couldn't possibly be you know yeah, it couldn't yeah. be as bad we, as all that yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah you're probably you know right. and, and the reality of, is sometimes yeah. not I think this is sort of probably almost willful not a hope it's a sort of willful blindness I think that a lot of people have faith in the system mm. um, and it takes quite a lot to really wake you up out of that and certainly this you know I've had a few instances where I've thought you know the world doesn't work quite the way you think it should but I think particularly now we are in a, a place where we simply just cannot rely on the system mm -hmm. because the system absolutely failed this protected scheduled monument planners didn't do their jobs properly and it continued to be failed it continues to this day to be failed by the system and I would say that the only people really with the best interests of our children's heritage now we're talking a 6,000 year history here mm -hmm. so it's a pretty important point in its story that would be that would be us that would be our generation I just want to come back to that idea of losing faith in the system because that's a really big shift in anyone's mind you know anyone who's had a kind of a crisis of belief or or anything like that that sense of it's like earthquake right it's that sense of what I thought was isn't and the shock of that and having to really come to terms with that yeah I think it doesn't get easier as well I think a lot of people you know they get that shock and then they find out when they try and do something you know think well if I contact this person and I point out the, the problems you know obviously that then they'll they'll say oh yes um you're quite right that is not you know they've they've told specifically that there should be nothing on knock IV and and a you know, this is dreadful, we'll sort it out. But then you realise that they're going to, the gaslighting starts. And mm -hmm. I'm going to use the word gaslighting because I've researched it carefully and I know it's very triggering for some people. But, but you know, it's when somebody literally tells you over and over and over that you're, you're, you're wrong, when you've got it in black and white in front of you, when you can see it with your own eyes and people just deny, deny, deny. And that seems to be how, you know, a lot of things work here mm -hmm. and elsewhere. go to the actual events surrounding... Yes, you said the 5th of yes, September. Yes, I think there were two... 2017. Yes, so, so on that day, the 5th of September, um, I was driving my young children home from school. My little one was just a, a baby. And we noticed that there was a, a digger on top of the hill right beside the cairn. And I was like, oh, what's that? What, you know, why is there a digger on top of the hill? And I panicked because I thought that shouldn't be there. And of course, I'd previously been worried about the road. So... It, you know, I thought, oh, no, this is something's happening. And I was sort of freaking out a bit. And my daughter was in the car with me um, and the other two were there. And and I said, I, sh I should go up there, but I, I don't know if I can. Um, and my daughter said, Mommy, you always said if I believed in something, I should do it. And I thought, God, <laughs> you know, yeah. so now I have to go because my daughter has She's just called me out. And and of course, so then I, I then I went up and spoke to, and I really don't know how I did it. I spoke to both the man with the digger and the man whose name's on the deeds. But one of the things I should stress about this place is that in Irish law for a very long time, these places of inauguration and heritage sites were owned by the community. There were places where the community had to be able to go because they were they had to be able to see what was happening. And that access to Knock Ivy Summit has been continual for, you know, my mother's grandmother, great-grandmother, and right back to, you know, the very earliest days of the hill. Uh, the, the cairn on top of the hill so the idea that somebody would own somewhere like that and say what what its future became I feel is actually flies in the face of you know our culture mm. whether you consider yourself Irish or British actually doesn't matter because the same the same rules apply it's shared heritage and we don't have all the answers but these places give you I, I always say that you know when you get to the top of a hill get a sense of perspective you mm. see the lands outside and you see you don't see orange and green you see farms and you see people's homes and shared a shared environment mm. and so by removing the access to these important places what are you doing to people's hearts and their minds so is that land then in private that land is currently right. in private ownership because we have proven through our research and the, the support of some wonderful archaeologists, I have to say most of them, who've been, you know, supportive and, and, and sort of 
the Ulster Archaeological Society had us give a presentation, some from down south, in particular Eamon Kelly, who was the former keeper of antiquities at the National Museum in Dublin. And I was instructed by someone to phone Ned Kelly as soon as things sort of got bad because people realised what this was. It was, a, it was a royal site. It is a royal site. I mean, I can use that word. I'm, I'm, I'm an amateur, right? So I can say it. But I think secretly people are scared to say it because it's been so badly overlooked. <laughs> it's been so badly forgotten. We all know about the O'Neills and Tullahogue. But well, actually, in, in the McGuinness stretch even further back in terms of their heritage in that in this landscape. So I think it's it's important to acknowledge that there are other royal sites as well as, you mm. know, um, we have our own in Ulster and perhaps we haven't looked after them mm-hmm. in the way that we should have. Do you have any idea how it ended up in private hands? Not exactly, but it used to be held within the lordship of the McGuinness of Ivey. So whenever the lands were surrendered to Henry VIII and re-granted, the parish of Drumbalaroni, which is the parish in which Nogaive sits, was regranted back to then Hugh McGuinness and then passed on to his son, who was Arthur McGuinness. And Arthur was running out of money to keep up with sort of the, the demands of being a, an English Viscount under the English. And he started to sell lands, and, and but he kept this hill very much, Kamur says, within his hands for as long as they possibly could. And at some point after that, it was it was lost, and I'm not sure exactly when. And then it went into obviously private ownership, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, we're talking about 400 years ago. This is a site that's been mm-hmm. venerated for 6,000 years. In some senses, I don't feel it's too late to to sort of try and remember a little bit more about what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the commons. You know, you said it was it was kind of held for the community so that people could access and and the right to roam and and the right for people to be able to access land and cross land and use land. You know, it's all been closed off and the idea that just the public will destroy it or damage it, you know, it's It's, it's actually nonsense. the opposite, isn't it, in yeah, this instance? It, um, exactly. But, but I, I can understand some of the arguments, you know, there's the insurance argument that you always hear if somebody damages themselves, hurts themselves, what's going to happen? But in this instance, in particular in this instance, and this was a point we were really trying to make to the Department for Communities, this is very clearly a place of assembly for the community where a relationship with their land was enacted. It, it was a church in a way, and I can't imagine for one minute anyone would tolerate unlawful development, unauthorised development at a, an important, much-loved church. And, and this is just as bad as that would be, you know. So the first it's a burial site, actually. It's a burial site, yeah. yes, and so sacred. Mm-hmm. So the first intrusion of the modern world mm-hmm. or was this... A broadband ta- master. A broadband master, mm-hmm. okay. So yeah. that went in and you went and spoke to the digger man and the landholder. Mm-hmm. Tell us what. Mm. Tell us about that. Because I don't think you walked up and said, excuse me, or did you? Yes, what was that like? Well, I, I have to tell you that like, I, I don't really, I was kind of just filled with righteous indignation, I suppose, you know, that sense of sort of, I am a, a passionate person. I throw myself into things, and and I, but but this was quite a big deal actually. It did feel like a really big deal. But I said, you know, you can't do that here. This is a burial site. There's ash and bone. We don't know where it stops, and you know. Was it listed in any way? Did it have it's, any? Sort no, of it protect- does have. It it is a scheduled site. Now I'm not saying that they bulldozed the cairn, although they did intend to bulldoze the cairn. Would you believe? Um, they wanted to put their electrical cables underneath the cairn, oh. but that was. They changed their mind because somebody did consult on that. But anyway, so just to sort of explain, the broadband mast, I spoke to the men that were associated with that and so did others. And we kind of came together in this sort of loose rabble of people who didn't really trust each other and were kind of really paranoid. And then we discovered not long after that, that there were plans passed for a wind turbine about 100 metres from the cairn, which would actually dominate the cairn so it would actually be taller than the cairn itself and the cairn was obviously put on the hilltop as the focal point for mm. the you know so whatever you feel about wind turbines and, and none of us were opposed to wind turbines I have to tell you at least not not in the beginning and, and this made us feel quite differently I have to say so it turned out that this wind turbine had gone through the planning process and I, I had a you know, a strong instinct that there's absolutely no way archaeologists would have okayed this. And it turned out that they hadn't because we looked into the plans and they had never been consulted. Uh-huh. There had been a, a flaw in the system and the necessary environmental impact assessment, which would have certainly been triggered by, you know, first of all, 
I'm almost certain that the archaeologists would have said no. And in fact, they did come out very strongly. The, both the Historic Monuments Council and the Department for Communities Historic Environment Division came out very strongly and said, you know, no, we would never have authorised this. But nobody cared that this massive flaw in the environmental protection of this sacred site had happened because nobody wanted to pick up the tab and they were scared because they got QCs from this big wind company saying we are putting our turbine up and if you don't let us we're going to take you for you know we're going to and they were talking about you know a lot of money and so nobody would do anything about it and basically they put it up overnight there was a stop notice that went into place as soon as the stop notice ended the turbine was up and they then what really broke our hearts and, and I really have to say like this wasn't on the plans that were passed. There was a lot of associated development that wasn't on the plans. And one of the things that turbines need is is earthing trenching. And in this particularly rocky place, it was just shy of two kilometres of earthing trenching. But that was never on any plans. So they were digging around the hill just wherever they wanted to, to put in the earthing trenching. So and as people it? who cared about the, you know, the, the sacredness of the place and potential archaeology, that was really difficult to watch. And we couldn't quite believe it. So they were earth, doing it. Earthing trenching? Uh, it was just to earth the, the turbine, you know. So the, it was the spoil heaps from the... No, to the, the earth, you know, like if you have um, electricity, oh, it has to be earthed. Yes, so this this was, you had to earthing, get a certain amount trenching. of earthing. But nobody seemed to understand that they needed this. It was something that a local person alerted us to. And we asked them where the plans were for the earthing trenching and for the associated cabinets, substations and so on. And it turned out it had all been either not put on the plans or separated out into you know, what we call project splitting, piecemeal kind of approach to development. So so the small little red circle that had gone on the plans to show this wind turbine, which forgot to mention the cairn, there, there was a, you know, there was a road that was two electricity cabinets, there was almost two kilometres of earthing trenching and various other bits and bobs, you know, that just never got assessed. So, you know, you wouldn't think it could happen, but um, it can and it did mm-hmm. and we watched it. I guess I'm trying to get to what it felt like to watch them do it and to watch them not just build the little path but build the road and put up the turbine and dig the cairn and it's kind of ongoing. It's horrible. Mm. I, um, as well as being a musician for a while when my children were small and I was having babies and dealing with a lot around birth and breastfeeding and so on in my in my sort of motherly years, I, I, I was a doula. I was a trained doula, so I was a birth companion. And my role was to be with women um, through difficult times and witness sometimes so that, that I could be there for them so that they would have a someone that they could trust as a witness for them someone independent Mm. and I treated this process in that way I felt that it was really important to document it all and bear witness to a violation and you know as a woman this enormous phallic object being stamped into the goddess in the land and I'll I'll admit to being a bit woo I'm a bit a bit of an old tree hugger but it it did it, it did remind me of you know a violation and I know that the other women involved in the project, because I have to say that I'm really not alone, and thank God, felt the same way. And it was mostly women, I have to say. We have had great support from the men in our lives, but I think it was the women who really felt this sense of violation the most, and I thought that was interesting. And not looking away mm. as well. It can be so difficult to look on something that's awful, but... To witness means you're not looking away. No, because you recognise the importance of witnessing and documenting. And in a way, it's part of the, st- the story of the hill. It's part of the history of the hill and it needed to be done. But also, if you have someone who's gone through a trauma like a violation, justice can come mm. if you have enough information. So, Can I go back to your first sort of confrontation? And you talked about these, these two men mm. and then with the digger, that machinery, and then the scouring of the the hill itself, and then these two bits of modern technology, one telecommunications, but the other one, this windmill that, of course, perhaps confoundingly is part of renewable energy and that logic of climate change and clean energy. That sounds like a very sort of complicated space to start to try and put in your objections and to get an organization of people behind you so 
Could you talk us through sort of the early days? One of the pieces of advice of someone who was closely involved in the early days of the campaign was someone who'd actually trained as a, a sangoma, a traditional um, medicine healer person, someone that we knew. And their advice was to tell the story. And I'm a storyteller and I think telling stories is extremely powerful. It's what you're doing here. You've had people on to tell their stories and it is very powerful. But I think it's more than just, it's a powerful act. In fact, in the old Irish culture, the storytellers and the, were, were the ones that remembered the law. The law was enshrined in, in stories it, by example. It may not be valued in the 21st century in the way that it was, you know, in the 10th century. But the power, I think, is still there. That's what we decided to do. And I think it is powerful. I should probably fill you in on the, how we got rid of the, the mast because it's gone. Yes. Yeah. In terms of, you know, what happened, I spoke to the digger man. It was nothing to do with him. He was just doing a job. And then I spoke to the landowner who told me that we might get rid of the broadband mast, which, as it turned out, had never been applied for planning permission. They were just bunging it up. Uh, he said, you might get rid of the mast, but you'll never get rid of the turbine because it has permission. And I said, well, I can't be sure that it will get rid of the turbine, but... I will fight you every step of the way. And that we left it at that. And then we went back a couple of days later with some more people and he got, you know, quite in my face. And it was not nice. I mean, I, you know, feel nervous even talking about it. It's not, especially in the country, you know, you never quite know. And it's not just the landowner, is it? It's the landowner's friends and it's the businesses. And, you know, this is a big business. I know that, you know, we shouldn't be worried about these things. But where money's concerned, um, I, I'm not sure it's ever... It's ever simple. It was horrible. And like I say, you know, there was a lot of nerves amongst everybody at the start. But I think we're far enough along now that we kind of realise that we're in it now. And that soon became the case. So. Especially with all the research you done. So he said there was permission for the wind mm -hmm. turbine. That's correct? There was permission given without the correct consultation or environmental impact assessment. Yes. Right, exactly. So permission is given, so it's it's perfectly legal and yeah. all of those things. But the They had way, a bit of paper that said they could put the turbine up, so that was that. Yeah, even though it didn't include all of the earth trenching. And, even though and, there were things that were done improperly during the process and even though there were things that were not shown on the plans, yes. And... There was no consultation with archaeologists or the heritage department. No. In fact, we contacted the Historic Monuments Council, who are governmental advisors. They're an independent body who are set up to advise both the governmental, the HED, and also government itself. And they were at the time chaired by a wonderful man called Gabriel Cooney, who's an expert on the Neolithic. And he stated in his letters that it was a site of national importance for understanding the Neolithic period in Ireland and absolutely asked them to revoke the planning permission before the turbine went up and unfortunately even though he sent that letter both to the department for infrastructure and to the local council who both had powers to intervene neither body did and that has persisted to be the case um, despite various legal things happening between the council and the dfi um, they've spent well over a million pounds talking about what not to do or you know doing nothing and now large parts of the development have timed out and become immune simply because nobody would do the right thing. Now, that does not mean that the fight is over, I'm happy to say, but it was certainly telling. <laughs> do you think that was done on purpose? Like, you might think that. I couldn't possibly no, comment. No, of course. Do I think it was done on purpose? I think that it was a lot cheaper to do it that way. Actually, that's not true. Had they revoked in the in the beginning, we were told it would cost them £750,000 and the council didn't want to pay it. To revoke, to revoke the, before the, the, the full damage was done. To say, no, you can't. It's a mistake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Take your, you know, here's your, go away, here's your money. It would have been £750,000. That's what the council said and they said they couldn't afford it. Scroll forward five years, council spent well over a million pounds. The damage has been done. It can't be undone, but I have to say that the bulk of the damage is being done on a visual level. Now, they've put a load of concrete into the hill. They've done things that shouldn't have happened in what I would describe as sacred ground. But if you take the turbine off the hill, the cairn is reinstated as the most important place. If you take it into state care, which is what should happen to this site, and we have met Deirdre Hargay and talked to her about that, and we're really campaigning strongly for that. 
if you do those things, then you restore it to the community and you also restore it from a sort of panoramic visual perspective. There, is, there isn't the, the visual problem. The dominance the, of the... the, the it, yeah, and it feels like it, there's a really strong statement being made on that hill right now, which is that the environment and your culture and your heritage doesn't matter as much as our right to make money. And don't forget that these turbines receive a lot of public money as well. Um, so it's our money we're actually paying for, for that turbine to be on that hill following a flawed process. And yeah, it's pretty tough to stomach. So like I said, it's not a big, tall hill, it's not a mountain. You might need a pair of decent shoes on, but it's not, it's not a difficult climb. And at the top, you have what some people might refer to as a pile of stones. A big pile of stones, it's about 100 feet in diameter, and it would have been much taller at one point. In the centre of that um, was a kist, a burial chamber. There were also secondary burials in the Bronze Age, certainly of an adult and a child. But underneath this cairn, which may well have had a passage in it, a bit like Sleeve Gullion or Newgrange. Underneath then we have this layer of bone and ash, which is very unusual. It does exist in other places, but it's of particular interest and kind of signifies that there were sort of potentially some ritual activities going on on the hill prior to the cairn being built. So the hill itself was probably considered sacred, not just the monument on the top of it. And it's that separation of place and object, you know, where does one begin and the other one end? And when you get up there after your little walk, even... 20 feet off the top of the hill you don't get the view that you get right at the top and when you get right to the top you have the best view the window on the morns with the sea on one side and the whole of the morn mountain range with the sun behind it and Sleeve Gullion to your right and then if you spin around you'll see Loch Ney over to your west and then the Belfast Hills in the distance and the Dramara Hills across to your right so you really do see huge parts of Ulster and in fact it's very interesting even up to the north you can see on a good day Slemish which would have been you know a major landmark and I think the view to Sleeve Gullion is also of great significance because from Knock the sun sets into Sleeve Gullion Lake on the winter solstice and that ties in with a very important mythological story that we have about the Kalyuk, um losing her golden ring in the lake at Sleeve Gullion so I, my question is did that story originate from our hill and um, Perhaps There's the thing about the Irish landscape that, yeah. or Irish culture, really, is that if you go abroad and you might go to the Loire Valley and you see all these, these chateaux and the built heritage. There's not a huge amount of built heritage, but you know, standing on that hill, I imagine that if you look towards the Morns, that view will never have changed. Not in absolutely five thousand. No. So and the view of the sun which is very important, moving along, coming up out of the water well, at its birth at dawn. Mm. And of course, in, in the old stories, you know, the, the sun went into the underworld at night. So it went in into the water and survived and came out reborn the next morning. And so the sun rising out of the water is very important. And then travelling along the hill and at certain times of the year, either setting into Sleeve Gullion or perhaps in the, the very height of the summer, setting into Loch Ney itself, which again is mm -hmm. Loch Achach, named for the solar deity, Oki, Olaher, the great, the good father. And so Oki, Loch Ney and Oki of Achach, Kova, it's the same name. It, it's indications in the in the words of the, the beliefs of the people who lived here. And that sacred mountain is named for the sun god. And so the cairn on top is... Oki's Cairn. It's beautiful and I'm a newcomer to this part of the world and I've loved exploring it and walking where you can and learning about the local stories and that sense too of climbing up a hill or a mountain or wherever it is and thinking how the view is the same and the course of the sun is the same. And the moon and the stars and yeah. Yeah so that's so timeless and it's often windy up there or yeah, yeah. you know or cold it's wind very windy and... that's why they wanted to put their turbine on oh. it <laughs> but it's vital you feel uh, vital yes alive. exactly you know your heart's pumping a bit from the from the climb and you get to that top and have a slug of water and kind of oh. it's 
but you don't have to climb up Sleeve Donner to get it. You, yeah. you know, it's it, it's, it's just available there. at other places too. And and I think that sense of connection was perhaps with this incredible view was perhaps the reason why it was chosen as the site. You've got the sun overhead. You know, the sun was the masculine and the land and the marriage of the sun, the dance of the sun and the earth goddess together is what brings about mm. the fertility of the people. So what more perfect place could there be for a marriage to the land, you know, the king committing himself to look after. And and also, you know, there's some suggestion, um, Eamon Kelly in his work would suggest that if kings weren't, getting particularly good fertility out of the land of maybe they struggled a little bit too much. There's a fabulous exhibition at the National Museum in Dublin called Kingship and Sacrifice, where when the kings weren't pleasing the goddess, that maybe they maybe they got the elbow in perhaps not the nicest of ways. That's an interesting concept as well, so that if the land wasn't really thriving, mm-hmm. they got rid of the chief. Yeah, it's the chief's fault. So not not sac- suggesting anything by that at all, sacrifice. but it's a, it's a, well, but it, but you know, it's an interesting way of viewing authority. You know, they 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 got the best, but they always considered that if if the lamb was really suffering, then it, mm-hmm. maybe that she wasn't best pleased. Your knowledge of the origin of the names is fascinating. Where you can link them back through to prehistory, and whenever I go on holiday, I always get the um, ordnance survey and look yeah. at the townlands. And just how evocative, how how multiple they are. They're absolutely every every field seems to be have its own name. Again, it's not in the built heritage; it's mm-hmm. in the landscape, but it's also in the language. It is, and and, and I mean, I'm I was you know of a Protestant background, but I did learn Irish when I was a small child in in Donegal, where we lived at the time. And I have taken more of an interest in it as I've got older. And I do feel that if more people perhaps understood their place names, they would feel straight away more connected to to what's around them. For example, in the town of Hill Town, there's a townland that's named for the holly tree. And and so often the place names are linked intrinsically to nature, the fields of the swallows or whatever yeah. it is, you know, Always, yeah. it tells you what the place would be if it was if it was left to its own devices. Would it be mm-hmm. a marsh? Would it would it grow? What kind of trees would grow on it? What kind of animals would live in those trees if we weren't here to get in the way? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it reminds you that there's other species around as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. It's that learning to speak about... A landscape that you don't see, but then as you learn the language for it, you start to then see what's there or what could be there or what was there. It's completely transformative, I I think. And it's always something that I've tried to do as I've lived in different parts of the world is to figure out what's going on, to kind of look and see and and listen to those stories and find those stories and walk that, you know, you drive past. I was going to say, I would like to bet that that's, that's actually just how you are as a person. One of the best ways to know anywhere, I think, is just to spend time in it. You don't necessarily need to Google the place name. Just sit there and look around. And maybe we've lost the ability just to do that. And I will tell you a little story about we visited on behalf of the gathering, a great group of environmental campaigns sort of loosely linked together, but sharing just the way you are the common themes and I was one of the members of the gathering who went to a meeting with the Department for Infrastructure in November and we sat in the lobby of this concrete building in Belfast and I noticed that on the table in front of me was this plastic plant and I looked closely at the plastic plant oh, I can't be that and another look I looked at it five big long tapered leaves on it and I said to the fellow beside me what do you think that looks like and he was like it looks like canvas plant. I said, yeah, it does. So I took a picture of it and I sent it to my mother. And I said, what do you think that is? And she's a gardener. And she said, well, it looks a bit like a cannabis plant. And I said, I think it is a cannabis plant. But of course, it was a plastic cannabis plant. But I think those people in that building, they had to have a plastic plant because they were in a concrete place. And they didn't even maybe recognise what that plant was supposed to be. And we were just wetting ourselves that, the, that there would be this thing that looked like a plastic canvas plant but I think it really outlines you know the, the difference there really are two worlds there's 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 the world of the people who who live in the nice house and get in the car and go to work and that's really their world is that and then there's the rest of the world that they're not seeing and how do we help those mm. people mm. or maybe you know just invite them to see things differently walking and sitting and just paying attention but it requires time. Yeah. And I think for, for a lot of people, their downtime is, is used in different ways. So they maybe go to the gym instead of climbing a hill. Mm. And I think just those, those different ways of living create two very different realities, if you like. So we really are dealing with two different types well, of reality. The Department for Infrastructure or the Department for Cars, as people like to refer <laughs> to it as, is, a, of course, the predominance of car culture everywhere 
makes w walking rural roads, th you know, yeah. um, almost impossible. I mean, uh, we, d we do it on holidays, but there's always that little tang of danger, you know, that some, something's going to come around the corner and you have to gather yourself up and stand in in a way. So that's why those little hills and the those areas that are off-road are even more special. You know, you can sort of relax. So going back to the campaign, you got yourself together. What tools did you use to promote your cause and what were the, some of the successes and difficulties that you had as uh, you try to, you know, let people know what, what was going on? And well, social media was the first one, just to let people know what was going on and see where it went. But it, it transpired that we had a lot of people who had really good skills in maybe areas that we hadn't expected, you know, skills that you wouldn't expect to come in useful, did come in useful. One wonderful lady in the campaign, Veronica, well, she's she's absolutely forensic. I lose a document, like, Veronica, where's, where would I find that? And she's got it in like 30 seconds. Or another lady in our group, is it Stunning Writer? And so if we need to write something, we run it past her and suddenly it's become this coherent thing that made sense when before it was all just a bit, you know, so we really have been blessed in who, who has come forward. But it is really interesting that the arts have been useful. And of course, I would say that being from an arts background, um, not to say that the academics haven't been helpful because they really, really have. But I think you need you need both. In order to try and inspire people, you need to be able to give them something that's not all negative. It's not all about how awful this is. It's about how wonderful this is and how we should be, you know, looking after it, not how despairing we are. And you do see people who have been broken by this process, by the gaslighting, by the devastation of seeing a, a much... What is the point of doing anything whenever, you know, you're just up against it? So we, we really badly need to, to feel powerful. Because I think we are powerful. We're way, way more powerful than we think we are. And we need people to understand that. <laughs> the things that I think resonate with our experience is that initial sense of complete powerlessness, like disarray, dismay rather. And then that the loss of trust. Those people who are supposed to be doing their jobs aren't doing their jobs. And even when you make the case for for some, some sort of corrective measure or just make it better, they won't engage. It's a horrible place to be. I think it must be a really horrible place to be on the other side. I would really not swap places with them for all the tea in China. I absolutely would not. I feel it must be a really depressing world that they live in when they can't see what the beauty really is. I feel like we're actually very lucky to be able to connect with the trees or, or the animals and really give it a, a monkeys because if all you have is money you're very poor but what we have to try and sort of do is <laughs> in a way help them to to see the beauty as well and 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 i feel like that's what's missing and so it's not that we should be sad it's that maybe they should be asking themselves some hard questions that's so interesting because often in this it feels us and them it feels that sense of conflict almost, you know, in your in in a rage, like just do the right thing. How disempowered but must people feel working within that environment mm. who are scared to to knock rock boats? I'm lucky. If I rock a boat, it's just me being yeah. me. But somebody else within a system, they, they you know, they really and they, their mortgage depends upon it and they're sitting there and they're feeling trapped and, and powerless. That must be way, way worse. And so I really hope that that they don't feel powerless because they have huge power and every little tiny thing that comes is a help. So yeah. That's an amazing insight because we too at times have, you know, because you're in prox close proximity with, for us, it was people wielding chainsaws. I'd like to speak to them. What's it feel like to do that? Who am I to you? I know at the mo right now who you are to me, but those discussions are really important and your empathy there and that sort of, articulating the care for them is, I think, remarkable. And that's something that I think is a way forward. You know, that's an extremely, for me, insightful approach. Very difficult to do, I don't know. Yeah, and, and not just the chainsaw people and the digger, the developers are the other people I, I don't you know. see, I've I've met a few of these people and I've I've sat down with them and they are just people and I think mostly they're sorry to say it quite unimaginative people 
who who are just doing a, a job, you know, to the best or, or maybe not even quite to the best of their abilities. I feel a bit sad that they don't see more magic in the world. And there's, an, is it C.S. Lewis? I can't remember who it was that said that if you don't believe in magic, you'll never see it. Forgive me if that's a misquote, but somebody somebody clever said it. <laughs> and I think that's true. And I really feel like the times when I've spoken to people like this and tried to help them see a bit more magic, they have... Been mm. some, they've been open to it actually mm. but I feel like they're they're living in a world that is very close to it most of the time and so we have to just show them as much as we can as much empathy as possible but also say look we would do this for you what we're doing for the tree we do it if this was outside your house and we do it in your garden because yeah you know you matter you're part of our environment you're part of our yeah you know home. and this is where the planning system so the fact that it went ahead without proper consultation and that was our issue too, with no environmental impact assessment, just a brushing aside of the impact of that. And imagine how much better it would be if they did have to do that. And then people wouldn't make these destructive decisions. They wouldn't be the one, they wouldn't be wielding anything. They would be enjoying it. And they could use planning for what it's meant to be. Planning... And I think they are, many of them, really wanting to do that and, and really wanting to do that. But there's a there's a big disconnect. There's a big problem somewhere. And I think, you know, when we did meet with the DFI, sitting in a room with people and being able to have just that one time an honest conversation, that felt like progress until it transpired then that the, the chief planner has now gone and and we're back to square one to some degree. Those are conversations that we have to be having with one another because, you know, you speak of environmental impact, but what about the human impact? And that's not being recorded. I, when I took my son up to the Neary Oaks and he said, I explained to him that they were going to cut these trees down for another flood alleviation programme. He said, but mummy, don't trees stop flooding? You know, he, he was seven. And I just think, you know, could you explain to my son why you're cutting down this beautiful tree, please? Because he just doesn't get it. And in fact, if you show him this violent act, this act of ecocide, what faith is he ever going to have in the system from 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 day one? He, you know, he he's entitled to to have a, an environment that that's full of beauty, you know. And we should be angry. People always think that they have to be um, calm and chilled and sort of Buddhist or or very Christian. But I I always think of you know if you're a Christian, you know, Jesus went into a temple and turned over a load of tables because he got angry when things weren't right. And I think that we should be allowed to have righteous anger. Yeah, I agree, and that's part of. So the human impact, that's the solastalgia, the way that the plans that they draw, you know, just that one little red circle, oh, we're just going to build a, a wind turbine and they leave out all the rest or they project split, which I think is very interesting. And the plans that we've seen that just have red circles around these trees might go. And so there's no plans for the restoration, but they're not factoring in the seven-year-old who's going, why? Or Molly Rose down That's at Molly damage. Rose. That's damage. That is damage. It is damage, isn't it? And just as we were talking about healing can be through connection with the land, not just it feels good to walk through the forest, but I know this place, I see this place, I start to recognize this place. That kind of healing that can come from the land, the damage then when you watch it be destroyed that's the thing that's just not factored or spoken about or measured or... And we or... talk about, you know, mental health. We talk about well-being. And we talk about, you know, how green spaces help with our mental health and all of that. But I would argue that it goes even further than that because as a, as a, a species, as a, you know, human, human beings, our natural environment does involve watching the sun rise and fall. What, mm. see, being able to see a horizon so that you know where you are mm. in space and time, if you like. Fire, you know a glow of a fire who doesn't like that I'd say that's pretty deep in the DNA and other things that we're kind of gradually getting further and further detached from and we think that it doesn't matter if you build a building and stop someone's view of something well actually I would argue that for that person that might be a really important part of their mental health and where are we factoring any of these things in we're just not and the reason that we're not doing it is because in inverted commas development um, and I think we need to look at what we mean by development and maybe that's the wrong word to use that's exactly what I've been thinking about for quite a long time. That word development has got to go. There's got to be something else because it's not development. It's extractivism or profiteering. And we're not back to that thing where we don't want anything built. Of course, we want the we want green energy. Of course, we want the flood alleviation. But how we do it 
and what we're taking into consideration when we do it. I think if you, you know, you take the example of medical treatment, for example, if you're in your right mind, then you're always allowed to consent or, or, you know, decline medical treatment. So uh, it should be, you would argue, the same for the environment. You know, the process of consent should be done through correct channels, through consultation, correct consultation, which didn't happen in our case, through the correct environmental consultations and through consultations with the community that are meaningful, not you know, something at the back of the paper or, um, you know, for a week, which you might miss or, you know, something that you maybe can't get to because you've got work. You know, th- these there are better ways of doing it. And I know that planners are starting to look at what other ways they can do these things. And there are some good eggs around. There really are. But I do feel like it's a cultural problem that is very embedded that we're up against. But we need to be making our case, you know, publicly. Another sort of, I think, common experience was that when we realised that we weren't getting anywhere with discussions with the DFI, we tried to personalise, or in our my terms, we tried to sort of cast a spell around a tree that was the, the Lord Mayor's banister tree. So we tried to give it a personality and, and show that it had a history and a connection with the past. Mm. And we photographed its bark and the, the, the lichen and... We thought that this might be some sort of tool or a little little weapon we could use to sort of make it feature in people's minds and that might sort of have a, a protective effect. Mm. I'm aware that you also engage with the arts and, and yeah. music yeah. to try and make the place special and to, to bring people in. Yeah, I mean, maybe we can use lots of tools to help people who maybe don't naturally have time or connect to, to connect in the ways that maybe you or I do to give them other ways to connect. And I mean, I'm actually in the process of doing a, a piece about that at the moment with Colum Sands, which is really about knowing the ground and how, how do we know the ground on which we stand? What are the things that make us, that bring us to connection using spoken word and music as part of that? I understand your desire to to try and protect the tree using using its story and I think that that is a really strong way of doing it you can't other it's it's the idea of you know the executioner you know not not looking in the eye of the person that's about to execute or or hiding his face you know we have to have the masks off we have to tell tell who that tree was or is is it still yeah it's gone Mm -hmm. it didn't work yeah that's that's a shame but I would I would really urge you to first of all you've documented it and it's it's there forevermore and I think that's really powerful in and of itself but I do think that it it is a good a good strategy to help raise awareness of the stories of places didn't work this time but that doesn't mean that it's not going to work you restored reimagined ancient um, didn't reimagine we 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 proved yes. you know i think we knew deep down that it was there was a lot to be found in the landscape and nobody had ever looked and nobody had ever written about it properly and we were going to because we were running out of time and we felt that it was somebody was somebody should do it so first of all ned kelly came up and did a, a landscape study um knockout andrum balleroni investigation of a royal ritual landscape which was published in amania um the journal of the navan research navan fort research association that's right and we will be shortly publishing in the spring edition of archaeology ireland our own article into what we discovered when we went looking and this is the thing you know you have to look first don't Mm. you to find things yeah i love that what we discovered when we went looking Mm -hmm. because there's never nothing there there's it's never a wasteland it's never nothing there's always something and even if it's a small well, but it's not a small thing. It's like a, it's a big thing. All of this that you've been telling about the site of it and the sun and where it's located. Well, I mean, that's, that's not that, that, that's all not proven. You know, the archaeologists say we can't prove that. But, you, you know, we can prove that we find a bone. We find a really, really exciting building um, right beside the knock, which may well have been, in our view, the house belonging to Art McGuinness. We repositioned two very important ring ditches that are very close to the knock. We find endless more forts, loads of really heavily, some of them quite heavily defended, some of them smaller um, forts in the landscape. But we've added, I don't know, 30 plus sites to the archaeological record in the region because it's rich, because it was an important place. It was in use for a long time. But again, you have to you have to do do the work. <laughs> the use of ancient musical instruments. So how did that come about? 
Well, because I'm obviously a musician and very close to the Nokaive was discovered the what does now become known as the Ardbrin horn or the Ardbrin trumpet. Simon O'Dwyer would tell me to call it a trumpet. It's a trumpet, not a horn. And um, it was a very important Iron Age horn, the finest in Ireland. And I will say that categorically, even finer than the Loch Nashade horn found in County Armagh. In fact, there was four horns there. But this is a bigger one and it's in the National Museum in Dublin. And we had a, a replica was being played at a demonstration nearby. And I messaged the guy, Simon O'Dwyer, who was playing it. I said, Simon, here, we've got an idea. Would you like to come and play your horn? Well, we couldn't get up to the top of the hill because, as you know, we're, we're, we're being prevented from doing that at the moment. But his belief is that this large horn that he has a replica of would have been played with at least one other, possibly multiples, as as the voice of the gods at, at sacred moments sounding this. And it was an amazing sound. And, you know, to bring in music into landscapes, that's such a, an amazing way to interact with the space around you. And certainly we're in the middle of a geological bowl. And as a musician, I think of a, a concert hall. And we have this, when you think of a speaker, the centre of a speaker is, is slightly pronounced. And then you have the bowl. And within the bowl, all the vibrations are sent out. And I suppose Nokaive is a bit like the centre of the speaker. And if you play music there, what happens? So we had him come and play his trumpet and it was amazing, really amazing. And we're in the process of, I'm trying to convince someone to make uh, a McGuinness harp as well. But uh, just a, a much later uh, musical instrument, but another historical musical instrument with associations with the area. So it's it's been a huge joy to research and discover a lot about our cultural heritage that really hadn't really been talked about a whole lot. It's a privilege. I think it's fantastic. And no, I'm not going to say that as if some good has come out of it because it's kind of, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have happened. But I guess that response, a response of rage, what are you doing here? And then a response of, I'm going to check what's going on and find out. And then other people gathering and, and then responding with the arts and a kind of a joy and discovery and perseverance as well. Well, I was going to say that's the, actually the most important thing is just not to be dissuaded. Have a break, but don't stop. And teamwork. And I think we're all discovering how important that is. And so I'm here talking to you, but without the people that I, that I have been so blessed to call good friends now, but, you know, about whom I was very suspicious in the beginning. <laughs> you know, we're so lucky. And and so I just think we have to flip it around. You, you see what you focus on. And so we decided to focus not just on the bad stuff, but to give ourselves some really juicy, lovely things to get our teeth into as well. And that's powerful. Going back to the, the those sort of first moments when you see something wrong. For us, it was the trees being felled and an unexpected... Visceral. Uh, visceral... Yeah, yeah that really didn't know. And so then you kind of realise, God, I really love that place, you know. And the actions that that happen after that are provoked by it. And it kind of reveals, it revealed to me anyway, that I cared that much. I had absolutely no clue in a casual way, but, but not, not, not deeply in the way it's ineffable. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's, that's not a good to have come out of it, I suppose. I think but we're very nervous about talking about the kind of sixth sense that people have about a place. Mm. I'm a lot less nervous about talking about it because of time. And I think people, you know, in, in the West, certainly in sort of 21st century, we don't say, you know, about a hunch that I had or or a connect, just, a, you know, a feeling of connection. Well, you know, I lost one of my dear chicken friends this week and, and my, my speckles. And, you know, you, you made a really interesting comment, which was, you know, interspecies friendships. <laughs> I never thought I would have a friendship with a chicken, but I did. And, you know, you can also have a really meaningful relationship with a tree mm. or, or a plant that you've loved and looked after and they'll reward you back. So, you know, we are we are not separate from our environment, we've got to stop trying to. We, we think that we're really sort of cerebral creatures that don't have these instinctive feelings, and so we call them instinct. That's what my dad says. Don't talk about we talk about instinct. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but we do have them, you know. And it's encouraged in children through Molly Rose's eyes. It was easier in a way to kind of situate oneself in her position and to empathise with her lo- grief over the trees. But if we shared it too, it was just harder to say because you hit thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. 
all that seems to drop away. It's a strange kind of dichotomy. We lose the magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Well, maybe we, we don't lose it. We yeah. suppress it. Yeah, in we suppress exactly. We don't um, allow us, or or we we don't lose the magic, but until it's stripped away. So the Molly Rose Way, you know, I love those trees. I didn't for a second think that someone would chop them down. That that was your feeling too. Like this can't possibly be happening, and. Yeah, there was a beautiful row of gum trees along the cemetery where my father was buried and they were incredibly significant to me because on the day of the funeral, you know, they were there. They were watching over us. It There was a, a gate. It kind of looked like an old track of maybe, you know, the farmscapes where he had grown up and beautiful. I mean, we loved being there. And one day my mum and I drove up to the cemetery and they were all gone. And not for a second would I have thought that anybody would take them away. So I mm. I really loved them and was really attached to them. Never said anything about it because there was no need until they were just obliterated. Well, maybe we need to talk about how much we love things before they're gone. Even it's all very well given a nice eulogy, but, you know, it's, it's really important not to not to witness yeah. the, the, the death. Or, you know. I, I, I think so. And that's what the walking in the land and the storing of the land and the storing of what you're doing so so that we we see it and see it more and more and that more people are able to see it so that those chainsaw guys are like I can't chop this tree down I mean it wouldn't that be a great kind of a moment to be at where they're like we're not doing that we're not that would be amazing and I don't think it's actually too much to hope for either Always um, remind ourselves how much we're asking for, how little we are asking for. For you, it's maybe they don't want to chop the tree down. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're frightened, or and they're just doing following. I mean, it's all very well to say I'm following orders, but I wouldn't. I genuinely wouldn't want to be the one to put a chainsaw through a healthy tree, mm-hmm. and even an unhealthy tree. I think I'd struggle, but 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 at least you you know you've waded up and you've done the done the maths and you've figured it out. But you know, in some instances, you just like the trees that were cut down at Navan Fort. I don't know if you heard about that, but during the lockdown, the the, the ancient seat of the kings of Ulster um, at at, at Navan Fort in County Armagh, the, some very very large, largely ash, and I and you know they say that there was a problem with the trees and whatever, but they were cut down during the lockdown, and then people went back, people like ourselves, but lots of other people went back, and these were trees they sat in when they visited the site. They were part of the site, you know, in terms of its ambiance. It's it, mm. they were part of it, and they were. Gone and there was a huge outpouring of grief now it was too late they just done it but what if we'd said we really loved these trees before that point mm-hmm. to the council mm-hmm. to the DFC or whoever it was that was responsible and I'm, I'm not sure exactly who it was you know would they would they would they've thought about it would they've done it more sensitively or you know they always say that when the when the was it the Romans came to England and they wanted to cut down all the Druids groves you know they they said that there's a story that the the Druids said well we we can't stop you from doing it but Will you let us do it instead? And they were able to, and this is just a story, but I'm not sure how much truth there is in it, but, you know, able to do it in a respectful way. It sounds so silly, doesn't it? But to, if you, you know, it's like putting your animal to sleep, you know, mm. if you That's have ex- to, if you have, so. Extraordinary. I'm thinking too about the Newry Oaks. Mm. I mean, they did say how much those trees were loved. People knew that and still they came in and did their crack well, I mean, that's where we have another responsibility because these people are accountable to politicians who are supposed to be accountable. And, you know, the politicians are supposed to represent us. And I do think that if you make your feelings known, I think people should make their feelings known. And if you are motivated and you care about things, you know, we've got to stop waiting for someone else to do it because we don't have that much time anymore. Mm. We're losing habitat at a, an incredible rate. We're losing access to places at an incredible rate and we're losing our heritage at an incredible rate. And so it's up to us to protect it for, for the next generation. I think traditions, um, laws, old laws, superstitions protected them, but not now. And so we have to. I'm genuinely curious about what's going to happen next. So the wind turbine is there. There's mm-hmm. no access up mm-hmm. to the hilltop. What's going to happen next? Well, we're going to get published. Our piece is going to get published in Archaeology Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. More people are then going to find out about this amazing place and what's around it. Remember that we're talking in, in long time periods here. So our piece is now 
preserved, just as the when we were researching this place, we discovered pieces of the past. This is now part of the story of the hill. So in a sense, we have protected it already going forward. That will not get renewed. Now, that's the worst case scenario is that it doesn't get renewed. You know, that thing stays up there until it's done. That's the worst case scenario, but we're not going with that. We are, the council have said themselves that it's against policy and um, something that's against planning policy and shouldn't be allowed to be there. And so without saying too much, we're absolutely in a strong position now to to ensure that the removal of the turbine in a timely fashion. And then hopefully, um, either before or after that, we have asked the Department for Communities to allow public access once again to the site in the way that there is at Crocken Hill and County Offaly, a similar hill, by taking Nokaive burial cairn into state care and then reinstating the lost access for, for future generations. And both of those things are still very much what we're, what we're aiming for, towards. So. And those, those two things actually sound infinitely possible. Yep. Absolutely possible. It's not... We got rid of the mast. We'll get rid of the turbine and people will be able to access Nokaive Summit again. And I have no doubt about those things. Whether it'll be in my lifetime, I think it will be, but I think it'll certainly happen. So, mm. you know. And in the storied history of that hill, you'll be part of that story. That's a great honour too, isn't it? Mm.